Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Lecture 10, in my 12-part lecture series on the subject of defending the faith. This lecture series was given in the spring semester of 1989 at the Institute Building located at the University of Texas at Austin. It was my final semester of law school, and in addition to my full course load, and in addition to my half-time work, 20 hours a week, clerking at a local law office, I took it upon myself to also research, prepare, and deliver this 12-part lecture series. As of this point in my life, I had been a member of the church for a decade, and during that time, I had done a great deal of research in anti-Mormon literature, anti-Mormon arguments, and responses to the same. In this 12-part lecture series, I drew upon that research, that knowledge, that study, in order to create this series of classes. I have not myself listened to these taped lectures for the past 30 years, and as I do so, I remember how immersed I was in the subject of Mormon apologetics. In this lecture, Lecture 10, we discuss the frequently encountered bugaboo between born-again Christians and Mormons on the subject of grace versus works. I show the class how to win this debate every time, hands down, using the New Testament as evidence for the Mormon position. I think you'll find it interesting to hear where Radio Free Mormon was 30 years ago on the subject of Mormon apologetics. I know I certainly do. So return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. Radio Free Mormon rides again. Before I begin with today's lesson, excuse me, I'm a little bit under the weather, but it's cold. I want to add a few things to last week's lesson because I came upon a couple other scriptures from the New Testament dealing with... uh, our capacity as children of our Heavenly Father to become like our Heavenly Father. And I wanted to go ahead and throw those in so that I could break the number of ten scriptures in the New Testament to talk about this. Uh, One's in Mark 12 and uh, verses 42 through 44. No, that's not right. Maybe it's Matthew 12. I wrote down Mark. Let's see. Well, great. That's not right either. Okay, well, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6, which is the other one. Verse 3. Okay, great. At least that one worked out. Now, when we think of uh, the hierarchy of beings in the universe, we usually think of God going from top to bottom. We've got God, angels, and men, right? I mean, if you look at it in a fairly general way, that's what we have. God, angels, and men. And yet here, Christ, or at least Paul, talking to the saints in Corinth, gives them this very tantalizing suggestion. And 1 Corinthians 6, 3 says, Know ye not that we shall judge angels... How much more things that pertain to this life? So talking about the fact that in the future, the saints, at least we assume those who are righteous, will be in a position to judge angels. And where does that put us in this entire universal setup? That one that I had before, so good, I'm going to check the other Gospels really fast and see if it's in Luke. Yes! Okay. I wrote down MK instead of LK. It's Luke chapter 12, verses 42 through 44. And this is part of a parable. Of course, you know that Christ taught the most important things toward the end of his ministry, after the first year of his ministry, in parables, so that they could not be understood except by those who were uh, partakers of the mysteries. And here's what he says. Uh, He's explaining a parable. We can go to verse 41. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, do you speak this parable unto us or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Of a truth, I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he has. The Lord will make the wise steward ruler over all that he has. So they are speaking in parable form, quite clearly at least to me, talking about the fact that we'll be ruler over all that God has, if we're found wise and faithful, and he will be like him. Let's get on to today's lesson. I've written this term on the board. Can anyone read it? Pretty big. Letters. Can anyone pronounce it? Yeah. Solafidianism. Solafidianism. Has anyone ever heard that term before? Seems like I've heard it, but I don't remember what it is. Okay. This is the technical term for the belief in salvation by grace alone, without any works. It's just salvation by grace. Solafidianism. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. And I really hope to get it done before the hour's out. I'm going to give it my best shot. But there's a lot to cover. Now, first off, the common mistake that is made by other churches about our church is that we do not believe 
the common mistake is that we believe that there's no, no grace at all to do with it. It's just us. We're pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and we're going to be judged according to our works, and that's all. There's no grace. There's no Christ. There's no nothing. For instance, on page 151 of Mormon Illusion, we have this. When we speak of obtaining salvation, most people recognize one of two ways whereby we think we might be saved. God's way by free, unmerited grace, or man's way by works. The Mormons teach that the way of salvation is by works. So you see, here we have anti-Mormon writers perpetrating this completely false notion, and he knows it's false, that we believe that salvation is by works. He never brings up the obvious conclusion that there's a third possible way that salvation could be by. He has grace, he has works. He never mentions the idea that it could be by grace and works, a mixture of that together. But he doesn't bring that up. I tell you that I know that he knows that he's wrong, because later on in this very chapter, chapter 14, he contradicts himself and he, he lets it go that uh, what Mormons really believe. On page 153, he says this, this salvation, the Mormon salvation, this salvation comes by grace plus baptism plus works. So later on, he lets on that he really knows what it's about, but uh, he wants to make it sound like we don't want anything to do with Christ or his atonement. We don't need it. We're just going to do it by works ourselves. Of course, we know the first two principles of our gospel first two principles of the gospel are faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance. And certainly the first one is clear enough. That's where we begin with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And repentance, uh, implicitly, uh, we need the atonement in order to make repentance effective, that we can be forgiven of our sins if we sincerely repent. And we're forgiven of them through the atonement of Jesus Christ. One of the scriptures that's uh, most often brought to bear against the Mormon church, and the reason why it's brought it's because of this erroneous belief that we believe it's just by works. Okay, and that's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And there it states, I'm going to go ahead and read out the Mormon allusion because it quotes uh, that scripture on page 158. Ephesians 2, 8 9 makes it crystal clear. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are saved not by works, not by works, not by works. Exclamation point. In the first instance, I think it's important to go ahead when one's quoting that scripture and read the next verse. If you go on to verse 10, it continues to say this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So God's before ordained that we should walk in these good works. So first off, I think it's important to read that, uh, that next verse when quoting that scripture. But generally, this is quoted against us because they believe that we don't believe in grace. And uh, in page 158 of the Mormon Illusion, the writer goes on to say, the Mormon answer is to try to nullify this clear and unmistakable statement given in the scriptures. And he says they turn rapidly to James, etc. Okay? Well, that's not my response, and I'm a Mormon, because there's no need to, because that statement in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is good, solid Mormon doctrine, it by grace and not by works period. Oftentimes I think we get in trouble in this church because we don't really understand what we believe about it, or maybe we say it in different words that are difficult for others to understand. For instance, let me prove this to you from the Book of Mormon, our belief in salvation by grace, 2 Nephi chapter 10, verse 24. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, reconcile yourselves to the will of God, and not to the will of the devil and the flesh. And remember, after you are recon reconciled unto God, that it is only in and through the grace of God that ye are saved. That's just as unequivocal as what Paul said, and it's just as true. Now, there's many ways you can phrase how we believe about works and grace and etc., but I think that the very best way to say it is as follows, and I think it's completely clear, completely true, and I think we can uh, better illustrate it from the Scripture. We believe that men are saved by grace, but judged according to their works. I think if we separate salvation from judgment, we can get a lot further in talking with people who are not of our faith. I think too often we get things confused, at least, you know, confused to them, by saying, you know, talking about personal salvation, general salvation. And oftentimes, even though that's a very valid way of looking at it, I think it becomes confusing to others. And uh, even as it has to this individual who wrote the book, The Mormon Illusion. So we believe that men are saved by grace, but judged according to their works. But to a lot of people, that's going to be contradictory because they're going to say that the definition of being 
Same as to have a good judgment. Oh. Uh huh. Well, we'll get on into uh, scriptures, you know, which obviously will show both because they're going to have the scriptures. You don't have to worry about these, right? They're going to have the scriptures talking about being saved by grace. And so all I have to do is bring up the scriptures showing about being judged by works. As a matter of fact, an interesting point that uh, a lot of uh, born again uh, individuals and pastors are coming up with this idea on their own to try and reconcile themselves to the scriptures. For instance, over here at the Hyde Park Baptist Church. Reverend, uh, whatever he's called, Patricia, Ralph Smith. I heard him say almost the exact same thing uh, about a year ago. Yes? I was just going to say, I've heard you say the exact same little thing differently before that I think it's easier to understand. What's that? Instead of saying um, judgment, um, salvation, wait. Salvation comes by grace, exaltation comes by works. I've heard you put it that way. Yeah. I would say that maybe to Mormons, but I wouldn't say it's non-members. I'm trying to keep it right down there and keep it on a basic line, something that's easily substantiatable, <laughs> that's a word, that can't be substantiated from the Bible using those words judgment and salvation. Before I go on with that, I want to talk to you about what I might consider maybe the stupidest statement of this book, The Mormon Illusion. I think it might win the award, at least it's got my nomination, on page 153, where he says this, We have asked Mormons and other devotees of works for salvation how many good works we had to do to be sure of our salvation. No one knows. Surely, if works in any degree were necessary, God would have prominently and repeatedly listed how many, what they were, and guaranteed us the certainty of our salvation when we had done them all. This isn't God's way." Unquote. Well, as to his question, how many, I might refer Mr. McElveen or McKelvin to the Ten Commandments, which is a pretty good number, ten, a certain number. We know Christ condensed those into two in the New Testament, but the ten still stand. His question, what are they? I could refer him to Exodus 20, so he can look at the Ten Commandments. Perhaps he's not familiar with those. Matthew 5-7, through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. I guess he's not aware of that passage of Scripture. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where the attributes of one who has charity are listed. I remember uh, reading in John chapter 3, where a certain man named Nicodemus, who was a ruler, a religious ruler in the city, came to Christ. He started asking Christ about, well, how can a person be born again, you know, and all this kind of thing. And he says to him, quote, how can these things be? This is verses 9 and 10 of John 3. And Christ responded to him and said, are you a master of Israel and know not these things? I feel like saying the same thing to Mr. McKelvin. Do you claim to be a preacher? And he does, up in Washington State. And don't you know these things? Don't you know that it's listed over and over in the Bible, what you have to do, what the commandments are? And finally, to his point about a guarantee of salvation, once one has done these things, I would refer him to Matthew 25, among other places. Perhaps that rings a bell. That's where Christ is talking about the parable of the sheep and the goats. And I'll just read a couple of verses from that, because you know it gets kind of long. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. But he says, And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say unto also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in verses 45 and 46, Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. That sounds like a pretty good guarantee. He's like that down in his book and still profess to know anything about the Bible. Of course, he wants to ignore these things and try and build up his side, but we'll see the weaknesses of his side momentarily. He also makes another mistake. It's about a general salvation. Now getting into our terminology, right, because he uses that. We do believe that there's a general salvation. And he mentions the fact that we believe that here on page 151. Mormons divide salvation into two parts, unconditional or general salvation and conditional or individual salvation. But in 152, he has this to say about it. There is no salvation of any kind for those who do not believe, only condemnation. So he doesn't believe in the general salvation. He only believes in one kind, and that's for those who believe. Once again, he's showing his ignorance of the scriptures. Let's turn to three interesting scriptures, which, as far as I know, nobody in the Christian world can understand except for the Mormon people. One's in John 12, 32, where Christ says this, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. I will draw all men unto me. Look at the universality of what he's talking about. Look in Jude chapter, Jude verse 3, where a similar thing is said. Jude 3, Beloved, he refers here to a letter he wrote before. And this is an interesting verse because it talks about extra biblical scripture. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. 
it was needful for me to write unto you, etc., etc. But he wrote unto him before about the common salvation. Now, what does the word common mean? It, yeah, it means available to all. The common salvation. And I wish we had that letter. Maybe there's a reason that we don't have that letter. But he wrote to him about the common salvation. And perhaps most striking of all is a scripture found in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. Now, this is really stunning. For therefore, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Isn't that interesting? Now, if he's not talking about two salvations there, one a general and one a specific, I don't know what he's talking about. Who is the Savior of all men, unequivocal, but especially of those that believe. Once again, as I say, there is a general salvation. It is taught in the Bible, and we are the only people, the only religion in the world that profess to understand what that's talking about. Everyone else, I think, would like to just turn their face away from it and ignore it and pretend it's not there. Okay, let me read again from this book, The Mormon Illusion, which I'm getting a lot of mileage out of. Biblical grace, this is from page 161, Biblical grace is God's unmerited love and salvation extended to the totally undeserving, without works. I read that to you from page 161 because that's a basic uh, setting forth of their, uh, their belief in how one is saved. Read it again. Biblical grace is God's unmerited love and salvation extended to the totally undeserving without works. They say again and again, it's without works, it's without works, it's without works, okay? And that's what he says right here. The irony of this entire situation is that they don't believe that at all. They don't believe it. The real irony is that Mormons are the only people who really believe it. Let me demonstrate to you exactly what I'm talking about. Now, if men are saved by grace, that means that there's no works attached, right? Okay, he's already said that. Fine. Well, what is a work? What is a work? A work in this context is an act that must be performed as a precondition to salvation. Simple enough, isn't it? That's what a work is. And yet, do born-again Christians really believe that? No, they don't. Because they believe we must accept Christ as our personal Savior to be saved. And lo and behold, that is a work. It is an act that a person must perform as a precondition to salvation. They believe there is no salvation whatsoever without that work, so they are the ones who really believe in salvation by works. On the other hand, Mormons don't believe in salvation, excuse me, do believe in salvation by grace alone without works. Because if salvation is by grace, what do you have to do to receive it? Nothing. There are no strings attached. It is of grace and grace alone. And as we know, we believe that salvation is by grace, that all men will be saved. And what are they going to be saved from? That's always a good question, you know. <laughs> what are you going to be saved from? What are you going to talk about being saved, salvation? What, you, what is it you're saved from? We are saved from death by grace. We are saved from physical death by grace and grace alone. And there are no strings attached. The grace of our God is true grace. The grace of their God has strings attached. Now, here's another point that's interesting. Because born-agains, to a man or woman almost invariably, believe also that the Bible is the complete, the inerrant word of God, and we've talked about that in another class. But the born-again Christians, however, say they believe that, but at the same time, their left hand is doing something else. Their left hand is accepting and believing only a fragment of the entire Bible. See, they say they believe it all, but they really only believe just a few scriptures that they've carefully selected from the text of the Bible. For instance, just a few instances of scriptures that they use, John 3.16. And you know what that says. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should have eternal life and should not perish. So, well, there it is. All you have to do is believe. Or, for instance, Romans 10.3. He who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, there it is. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord and you're saved. This reminds me somewhat of the lyrics from a song by Simon and Garfunkel called The Boxer. You've probably heard of it. There's a certain lyric in there that goes, All lies and jests till a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. This is exactly their attitude to the Bible, and I don't mind telling you because it's true. As far as they're concerned, the Bible is all lies and jests until they hear what they want to hear, those scriptures that tell them, like uh, John 3.16 and Romans 10.3. Then they disregard the rest. That's exactly what they do. My position is that I think it is extremely dangerous to say that since the Bible in one place says that this one thing is necessary to salvation, we will believe that. And that alone, even though in all these other places in the Bible, it says that all these other things are necessary to salvation. But they just disregard that. 10.3. That's a, that's a big born-again scripture, too. For, just for a couple of examples, baptism is clearly taught that it's essential to salvation in Mark 16. 
Okay, Mark 16, 15, and 16. Holy Ghost, receiving the Holy Ghost, clearly taught that it's necessary to salvation in John 3 and 5. You have to be born of water and of the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. So these are just a couple of examples of things other than just believing or just calling upon the name of the Lord that are necessary to salvation. But when it comes to those, whoop, we'll just disregard those. What they're doing, and I don't know why they're doing it, but they look for the lowest common denominator in the scriptures. What is the lowest common denominator of salvation? They find it, and then they make it their entire plan of salvation. That's all you need to do. I can't say why they do it, but in my opinion, I think it would be much smarter to include them all. Now, there are many things that Paul said in the scripture which do sound like works are unimportant. Okay? He said a lot of those things. Let me give you three examples. Uh, Romans 3.20. Let's look at these briefly. Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Ephesians 2.14 and 15, where he says this. For he is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And Colossians 2.14. These are just examples. Three examples that I chose because they were used in another anti-Mormon publication. 2.14. Uh, speaking of Christ, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And these are not only used about the works that we say are necessary, but also the ordinances that we say are necessary to see, receive baptism, confirmation, uh, sealing in the temple, etc. Well, as I said, these were used in, in another anti-Mormon publication. But the fact is that Paul is not talking about the works of the gospel. The good works, the things that people need to do that are right, loving their neighbor, helping them out, obeying the commandments of God. What he is talking about is the works of the law of Moses. That is all that he's talking about there. And if you read it in context, it helps a lot because that's exactly what he's talking about. Time and time again, we find Paul talking about the law of Moses, saying, it's done It's over. It's taken out of the way. No longer is circumcision necessary. No longer are all these other ordinances and laws necessary to be followed. Now we live the higher law, the law that Christ gave us, and we obey the commandments of God. Briefly speaking now, the reason why Paul continues to mention this is because one of the great threats of the early church was the Judaizers. Anyone heard of that term? Good. The Judaizers. The Judaizers, right? These were individuals who had come out of the Jewish religion and joined Christianity. Or actually, in that time, was more joining another sect of Judaism, right? Uh, We look at it as such a distinct thing now, but then it wasn't anywhere near so distinct. But they joined it. A great many joined it. But after they joined it, they began reverting to their old ways, thinking that obedience to the law of Moses was still necessary. Circumcision was still necessary. Many of his epistles writes concerning these types of individuals and saying, no, the law is fulfilled. There is no more need for these ordinances. But the problem is that today people look at that and they say, well, look, there's no need for any ordinances. There's no need for any commandments because it says right here, the law and the ordinances are no longer applicable. But Paul was talking about the law of Moses and the ordinances that pertain thereto. And that will become extremely clear later on as we read some other things that uh, Paul says. And if we compare and contrast that with these verses, we see that not only was Paul talking about the ordinances of the law of Moses being taken out of the way, but that indeed the laws of the gospel, good works, are still fully applicable, and we must be obedient to them in order to obtain eternal life. Now, I have here, let's see, I've got one, two, three, four people, a list of scriptures that I've taken out of the New Testament. I hope it surprises you by its number. Because I have 181 New Testament scriptures demonstrating that works are necessary to salvation. I put little asterisks, though they're a little bit hard to see now in this copy, by the ones that I thought, at the time anyway, were some of the most forceful and most straightforward. But all of them deal with that subject in one sense or another. And what I'd like to do is to go through a number of these, at least one from each of the books, or each of the books in the New Testament that I have, showing that not only is it taught in all these Gospels, but it's also taught in every single epistle that Paul ever wrote, at least once, and usually more often than that. There's only one epistle and one book in the New Testament that doesn't have a statement saying that works are necessary to judgment, good judgment, etc., and that book, 
not surprisingly, is Philemon, a very small one, which is just talking about taking back, you know, a runaway slave, etc. So let's begin, and I'm going to take some of those that I think were the, the best, with Matthew 3, 8 through 10. And when we're done with this, and as we're going through this, continue to ask yourselves, well, does the Bible really teach that works aren't necessary? 3, 8 through 10. John the Baptist, bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father, or as our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which brings not forth good fruit is hewn down in cast 1 through 23. This one's a very good one because Christ here is addressing the people of today, the born-again Christians of today. And they should read this and understand that he's talking to them. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Chapter 10, verse 22 of Matthew. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. I don't know what could be more plain or straightforward than that. That's why it's favorite scriptures. Paul, I'll compare Paul with the Son of God and say, well, look, let's see what the Son of God has to say about this, okay? He says he will come to reward every man according to his works. What, uh, so it just depends because there are so many different theories about salvation by grace. Are they surprised to see these scriptures in there? Uh, generally, yes. Generally, yes. Because this is unequivocal. Every man will be judged according to his works. And that's why I think it's best to start out with saying that we believe all men are saved by grace but judged according to our works because this comes right out and says it. And both of those facts are completely sustainable in many, many places from the Bible. Yeah. What was the scripture you read after Matthew 3? Uh, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. And just 21 by itself is, is just fine. Now I'm going to start going to each one of the books here, straight through the New Testament. We'll have to skip Philemon because there's none there. Of course, it's only a page long. What do you expect? Mark 16 and 16. And I simply use this one because it says that baptism is necessary to salvation. 16, 16. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. There's more to being saved than just believing. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Note the conjunctive form. The and. Luke 11:28. Oh, this is great. You can read verse 27 because it sets it up. And it came to pass as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. John 5, no, John 14, 15. And you probably know what that one says because that one's pretty famous. 14, 15 says, If ye love me, keep my commandments. Yeah. This doesn't discredit any of the other ones that you've uh, mentioned, but I think some people are, or a lot of people are probably aware of that, and they say that one of the attributes of a saved person, one who is saved by confessing Christ or one who is saved by grace, one of the attributes of those kind of people is that they, they keep the commandments. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that in a little. Yeah, I can't address all the because there's all sorts of different little variations in this theme, but I will address later on the variation that's brought up in this book by this preacher, The Mormon Illusion, okay? And I'll address that one. We'll see that there's great gaping holes in their theology. Okay? At least two. So if you take 1415 and invert it to 1514 in John, you get another one. Ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. And John, in his epistles, which we'll read a little bit from later on, gets much more adamant about this very, very doctrine, calling people liars if they say they love Christ but don't keep his commandments. Acts 10, 34 through 35. This is an exciting one. It's where Peter gets the revelation the gospel can go to the Gentiles. And here's what he exclaims. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. Now we get to Romans, which is a good one, because Romans produces a lot of scriptures dealing with grace. In fact, the single book in the New Testament that mentions grace the most times is Romans. Romans 2, 5 through 11. And 13. Those are kind of two separate ones, but, you know, they're only separated by one verse. Let me read it to you real fast. Think if Paul could be any more clear about this. But after, the heart, after your hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. 
to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life is what they'll get. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, indignation and wrath is what they'll get. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that works good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. And then he finishes it off in verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. There's a number of other scriptures which are on this, uh, this handout I gave you, dealing with Romans. I guess I'll just read one other one, because Romans is such a hot spot for born-again Christians. 8, chapter 8, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, brethren, we are blessed to live after the flesh, but if you live after the flesh, you shall die. Now note who he's talking to. Always keep this in mind. Who's he talking to? He's not talking to non-members. He's talking to the people who are already members of the church, the saints in Rome. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the flesh, kill them off, not do them anymore, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7.19. We'll go on to the next book. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. That's what counts. Whether you're circumcised or not doesn't make any difference, but it's keeping the commandments of God. That's what the crux of the matter is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Going to the next book. Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I just read verse 21 there, but 19 through 19 and 20 just list other bad things. He says, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And another one in Galatians 6, 7 through 10, he denotes what's called sometimes the law of the harvest, or maybe what Alma would have called the law of restoration. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 7. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, excuse me, in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things come the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience, but be not ye therefore partakers with them. In chapter 6, verse 8 of Ephesians, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he be free. Philippians 2, verse 12, you should know this one, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Once again, he's talking to members of the church. They've already accepted Christ, but he's still telling them, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's obviously not something that they've already attained and go around with a little button saying, I'm saved. You know, I was, I was saved on such and such a date. This is something they're still working for. Colossians 3, 24 and 25, uh, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he that does wrong shall receive for the wrong which he has done, and there is no respect of persons. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-9 For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lusts of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any way, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified, for God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel, of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 4, 12 through 16. Let no man despise your youth, but be you an example of the believers in word and conversation, in charity and spirit, in faith and purity, till I come. Give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, and with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. 
Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. And here in verse 16, take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you shall both save yourself and them that hear you. Here he's talking to Timothy, bishop of the church at Ephesus. And he's not saying you're already saved. He's saying if you continue in the doctrine, you'll save yourself and all those that hear you. 2 Timothy 4.14. Oh, this is an interesting one. He, he mentions a certain person. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. All right, so we've got, we got names here. Titus 1.16. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and, and unto every good work reprobate. He talks about the, the sore end of those people. Hebrews 5.9. We skipped Philemon, like I said. Hebrews 5, 9. Ah, good one. You can do 8 and 9. Though son, obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Not unto all them that confess his name. Unto all them that obey him. We're going to skip James here for a second, because we'll come back to that later. Of course, you know, that's where it really gets thick and fast. And what I'm trying to show is that it's not just James that talks about this. James does, and he does it very forcefully, but every single other book in the Bible, including all the epistles that Paul wrote, except the one to Philemon, talk about it just as forcefully, if not more so in some cases, than James did. 1 Peter 1.17, here we have the president of the church. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, etc. The Father judges every man according to that man's work. 2 Peter 1.5-11. Well... 5 through 9, he's talking about the things you need to do in order to make your calling and election sure, etc. And then in verse 10, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so, in other words, by doing all these things, you know, there's patience, temperance, brotherly kindness, virtue, diligence, etc. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how you get there, according to Peter. Now, 1 John 1, 6 and 7, here's where John gets really testy about this and very strong about what he started saying before in his gospel. You know, if you love me, keep my commandments. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And, and if we walk in the light and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's an interesting born again phrase kind of in it. They use it a lot, in other words. But he says, this is what you have to do in order to be cleansed of sin by the Son of God. You have to walk in the light. And if you don't, and you say you love Christ, you're a liar. 2 John 1, 9-11. I think John is much more forceful than James. 9-11. Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, which is the born-agains, they don't bring this doctrine... If there come any born-again Christians unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house. Neither bid him God's speed. For he that bids him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. 3 John 1.11. And 3 John is shorter than Jude, excuse me, than, than Philemon, but it has something in there. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that does good is of God, but he that does evil has not seen God. Jude 1.14.15. There's really no chapter 1, it's just one book, but verses 14 and 15. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And finally, we're the last book of the New Testament. Not a moment too soon, I know you're saying. But I want to make it abundantly clear how prevalent this doctrine is throughout the New Testament. We'll go to the very last chapter of the last book in the Bible. Revelations 22, verses 14 and 15. Christ speaking from heaven. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates and into the city. For without, or in other words outside, are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and adulterers and whosoever loves and makes a lie. So in order to get into the heavenly city, you have to keep the commandments of God according to Christ speaking from heaven in Revelation, the very last chapter. What this is saying is just what I've been telling you before. We are saved by grace, but boy, you better believe we're judged according to our works. And if you don't believe that, you may as well give up the Bible and go 
become a Buddhist or something because the Bible completely confutes and contradicts and does not support the born-again doctrine on this point. There is one scripture that I know of that brings it all together, grace and works beautifully, and it's in the Book of Mormon. And it's in the last chapter of the last book of the Book of Mormon. It's in Moroni chapter 10, verses 32 through 33. Let me read this to you. Moroni 10. Okay. As a matter of fact, these are the second and third last to the last verses in the Book of Mormon. Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And there we have the work aspect. And if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you. So here's the grace. That by his grace you may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ, you can in no wise deny the power of God. And again, if ye by the grace of God are perfect in Christ and deny not his power, then are ye sanctified in Christ. By the grace of God, through the shedding of the blood of Christ, which is in the covenant of the Father unto the remission of your sins, that you become holy without spot. So there it's perfectly brought together and shown how it's a marriage between the two. It's not grace versus works that we're talking about. It's not the born again's over here defending grace and us over here defending works. It's grace and works working together just the way that the Lord intended that it should. In fact, let me give you an example. It was a parable given by David O. McKay, which is a wonderful parable. I've never had any success, you know, converting born again Christians with it. But uh, he talked of a long time ago. Uh, there was a newspaper that brought out a story on the front page. It was a small newspaper. And what had happened was that a young boy had been out uh, in this water hole. Uh, it was frozen over, apparently, so he was on top skating, and it broke. The ice broke, and he fell in, and he was drowning because he couldn't get out. But his friend was there, and what his friend did was he took a branch, a long branch, and he stuck it out to the boy so the boy could grab it and pull himself to shore. And the headline to the paper said that this young man saves friend's life. And President McKay said, now think about this technically, closely. Is that really what happened? Did he save his friend's life? No. Technically, no, he didn't. What he did was he made it possible for his friend to save his own life. You see the distinction? He didn't jump in after him and pull him out. He wasn't unconscious. He made it possible by sticking out a branch to him for his friend to grab on the branch and pull himself up and save his own life. And that is exactly how we view the atonement of Jesus Christ. Without Christ, we would be stuck there drowning, nothing we could do. We would drown, and we would die, both spiritually and physically. But Christ came along and stuck out this branch. Without that, we could not live. But it is up to us to grab hold, and it is up to us to pull ourselves out. And it's up to the prophets of God, directed by the Lord, to tell us what we need to do in order to pull ourselves out. In other words, the commandments we need to obey. Now, the claim is often made by born-again Christians, and I see, it, I, see, I see it often in the book of Godmakers, that Mormons are boastful. They're so boastful because, you know, they believe you've got to do all these good works, and they're just, you know, sitting there riding along on their own glory and boasting to everybody. I've heard that claim a number of times, but my experience has been, it's the born-again Christians that are boastful people, and it's the Mormons that are humble. I ask myself, why? I think i got the answer to this one. It's simply because they, the born-again Christians, believe they have already got it made. Whereas we believe we must endure faithful to the end. And thereby they go off and join people in the large and spacious building, pointing fingers and laughing and mocking. As an example, a child whose parents buy him a new red wagon is going to be more boastful about it and about his immediate possession of the wagon than a child who has to work for it and doesn't have it yet. It's the exact same type of principle. And a, an interesting note here is that children who are given things such as the red wagon, just given them outright, generally tend to value them less highly and the children who have to work for it. I think that's the exact same case here. Moving on. I'm bound to determined to get through this, but I may not anyway. One of the most famous born-again chapters in the entire Bible is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Right? The love chapter. You know, charity, charity, blah, blah, blah. And they read that quite often and read from it very often. But the funny thing about it is, is that this chapter alone completely confutes their incorrect doctrine of solophidianism. Powerfully, Paul here says, no, it's not just by faith in Christ. Let's read what he says. The key is in verse 4 of the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And I'm sure you're familiar with this chapter, because we read a lot in our church too. He starts off, excuse me, it's in verse 2. Hope you didn't write that in ink. 
Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Right? He's talking about the importance of charity to salvation. Ooh, you should start thinking right there. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, listen to what he says here. Verse 2. And though I have all faith, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. You can have all the faith in the world, according to Paul. If you don't have charity, you're nothing. Well, what's charity? You know how he, he defines charity later on. And you know how he defines charity? In acts. In physical actions. Charity suffers long. And, of course, what he's saying is charity doesn't do it. Charity can't do anything. It's an abstract concept. It's a person with charity, right? Speaking poetically. A person with charity suffers long, is kind, envies not, vaunts not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Is what is important. He says, if you have all faith in the world, if you can even remove mountains, if you don't have these charity, this charity, if you don't perform these acts to your fellow men, you're nothing. Completely refutes their claim in one of their most loved passages of scripture. Another one, of course, that they love was the Sermon on the Mount. It's a very important passage. Three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Yet, this passage of Scripture, this sermon, completely destroys their doctrine of salvation by grace. They're under this incorrect concept, this incorrect notion that Christ came down, did away with the law of Moses, didn't institute a law in, in his place. You know, that's what they think. You think they never read it. You think they never read the Sermon on the Mount. Christ did come down and take away the law of Moses. But what he did was he instituted an even harder law in its stead. He didn't just take it away. It's much harder. Read a few of the verses. I won't uh, give you the reference. You know what I'm talking about. It used to be said that if a person killed a man, you know he was in trouble. But now I say that if you even think something bad about a guy in your heart or call him rock or whatever, right? You're in judgment of, of hellfire and judgment. That's not an easier law, let me tell you. That's a more difficult law. It used to be said under the law of Moses, he says, that if a man commits adultery with a woman, well, he's going to get stoned. But I tell you now that if a man looks at another woman and just lusts after her in her heart, well, that's enough. This is not an easier law that Christ is giving. He took away the law of Moses, gave a harder law in its stead. And then the last four verses of the Sermon on the Mount, which are found in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, absolutely and finally drive the death nail into this doctrine of sola fidianism, or salvation by grace alone. Because a lot of people like to say, well, he's just talking about what it would be nice if people would do, and he doesn't expect them to do it. You ever heard that? I have. So let's look what he said, his last, last four verses of the sermon. Verses 24 through 27. Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built, which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Christ is not just talking to hear himself speak. I don't think he really ever did, but he's certainly not here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, hear them, do them, and you're built on a rock. But if you hear them and don't do them, you're on sand. The Sermon on the Mount completely refutes the claims of the born-again Christians. I'll have to close this up next week. I do want to mention a couple other things before I, I close for this week. I often ask the question about the judgment day. You know, so many people, born-in Christians, other people, are under this idea, you die, you're judged. I mean, there's really no judgment there, right? It's just you die, you go to heaven, and you go to hell. So many people are under that, that misconception. I try and remind people, say, well, don't you remember where we read in the Bible about a judgment day where everybody's brought forward to the judgment of God? So, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, because everybody's heard of that and say, oh, yeah, okay, that's right. And then I ask them this question. I say, well, when it comes time for Judgment Day and everyone's brought before God to be judged, what are they going to be judged by? And you know, I've never had a person say to me anything other than their works because it's so obvious and so clear. Even born-in Christians, you know? I say, well, what do you think they're going to judge by? Well, by their works. And if anyone should not agree with that, because, you know, you might, then again, you go, you go and say, well, that's right, they're judged according to their works. You can go right to Revelations chapter 20, verses 12 and 13, because that will bear you off triumphant. Because that's exactly what it says there. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And then it says it again for you, okay? 
They don't get it the first time. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. So this is a tack that I sometimes use with the judgment day and get uh, sometimes good responses with it. I am going to have to finish today, and we'll use up about half of next week's class, probably more, for the rest of this, uh, this lesson on solophidianism or salvation by grace. It is an important topic because it's one of the three main things, uh, excuse me, it's one of the main things that separates us from those who are most active in criticizing our church. As a matter of fact, it's one of the three great heresies. There are three great heresies. My you know, apologies to Bruce R. McConkie, who listed seven, but there are three main heresies that Satan has instituted in this world, and each one relates to one of the members of the Godhead, and it's what keeps the world in complete darkness. The first one relates to God the Father, and it says the Trinity. You can't know God. He's just this you know, immaterial mass. We've talked about that, right? That's the first heresy. The second heresy deals with the Holy Ghost. And what does it say? It says, he doesn't talk to anybody anymore. Revelation's done with. The heavens are closed. The Bible's all we got. The Holy Ghost is just, you know, he's on vacation. He's in the Bermudas. He won't be back for um, a long time. And the third heresy is what we're talking about today, and that deals with the atonement of Christ. And it says, you don't have to do anything except accept Christ. Works are not necessary. That is the third great heresy. And so, since it is so important, we will be talking about that somewhat more next week, and then we'll get into some other fun stuff. We need to have a closing prayer now. Well, that concludes Lecture 10 of my 12-part lecture series given at the Institute Building at the University of Texas at Austin in the spring of 1989. I look forward to bringing you the final two lectures in this series. Yes, we are almost there, which I will produce and post as occasion permits. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. 